Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When scripture deals with the question of healing, it's tempting to think of modern medicine, which places its focus on the well-being of an individual body. But the very nature of the physical body is what makes it so useful for making the Bible's point. Just as a human body is made up of several parts that all work together, so too is a human community. Moreover, just as a physical body is restored by medical therapy, so too a body politic, made up of a group or groups of people, is restored by a very specific and narrowly defined therapy found only in the content of the Bible. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 29 to 31. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 318 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Very often, people make the claim that the New Testament is about healing. And whenever they encounter our school of biblical exegesis, the first question they raise is, Father Mark, but I thought that Jesus came to heal us. The problem with this question is that you are hearing a biblical discussion of, literally, of therapy from an individualistic perspective. There is a healing that takes place, but the body that Scripture is dealing with ultimately is the body politic of Jesus Christ, and the healing that it's presenting to us in the story is a very specific kind of healing that comes by a specific activity. It's critical that we do not conflate modern notions of therapy or medicine or healing or counseling or support. It is absolutely urgent that we not conflate those individualistic endeavors with the healing that is being presented here in chapter 15 of Matthew. The most significant action of Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters for a single sermon. We can't overlook that. Sometimes people see him as a healer, are amazed by the healings, and then they go off to do the things they used to do before. If an alcoholic manages to stop drinking, that doesn't mean that everything is right. It means that he has to go back and now live as someone who's going to face his problems rather than drink them away. Jesus will heal, but it is a healing with the Word, is healing with a teaching, so that you go and you live with faith, trusting in the teaching that he gives. The healing is only a signpost towards acting in faith, in trust 
of what Jesus is proclaiming regarding the bounty of his Father. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up the mountain, he was sitting there. Once again, we have Jesus ascending the mountain, not to receive the Torah in Matthew, but to sit in judgment and explicate the Torah, to expound the Torah, not expound on it, but preach it and instruct the crowd from the throne of Moses as to the meaning of the words of God's book, of his law, his book of instruction. It's a very powerful metaphor. And when you think about what Father Paul has been saying about the itinerant word, there's an itinerary for the mountain in Matthew that ultimately comes to its conclusion in the baptismal gospel, where the mountain of Sinai suddenly appears in Galilee with the commission to go and make disciples of all nations. So there's something important happening here. Why does the mountain appear here, and where does the mountain connect later in the narrative? When you're examining literature, you're looking at setting, you're looking at place. If Jesus is just going around healing people, First of all, do we need to know where he went? Well, we do know that part of what Jesus does is he heals, he preaches, and then moves on, because there's so much work that needs to be done, he needs to go find more fields to sow his seed. So then you say, okay, so it makes sense that Jesus departed. That's the first half of the sentence. But that he went to the Sea of Galilee. Why the Sea of Galilee? Well, the Sea of Galilee is where the Gentiles reside, so he's going specifically into the Gentile regions. Last time when we talked about him going to Tyre and Sidon, we talked about why he was going out of Judah and Israel in order to go into this area of the Gentiles. This is fertile ground for him to sow his seeds. So he went from the coasts of the Gentiles to the Sea of the Gentiles, Galilee. Okay, good enough. But then he went up into a mountain. Why into a mountain? Why is it not enough for him to go to the coast or the beach? Why didn't he go to the beach of Galilee and sit down there? I'm from Colorado, but I prefer going to the beach if I'm going to relax. So what is Jesus doing up in the mountain? Jesus is going up in the mountain precisely as you said, Father. Mountains have a meaning of their own. This is where the divine word comes from. This is why Jesus did a sermon on the mount, because Teaching from the mountain is where you get the teaching from the deity. And then he sat down. Another peculiar detail. Why do we have to know if he was standing or sitting? What's the point of that? Back in the olden days, it wasn't the teacher who stood and the students who sat. The teacher was an old man. The teacher would sit while the students stood. This is what it means to learn. This is what it means to be a student. You stand. When Jesus sits on the mountain, among the Gentiles, it means he's finding his place, and that there is the voice of the teaching of the deity coming precisely from where the Gentiles reside. This is the surprising point. Jesus is doing everything that you would expect of a deity, except it's the wrong mountain. This is not Sinai. This is in Gentile country. Very interesting that he chooses a mountain in Gentile country to sit upon in order to expound his teaching. Well, if you look at the itinerary of the mountain in Matthew, before Jesus ascends the mountain to give the scroll of the Torah in the form we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, he is in chapter 4 
brought up to a very high mountain to confront Satan. So what's striking here in chapter 15, when he ascends the mountain and sits down, is that his confrontation with Satan was informed by the knowledge that the throne on the mountain doesn't belong to Satan. Remember, we said it wasn't for Satan to give or take away. It belongs to the Father of Jesus, who allows or enables Jesus to sit on the seat of authority on that mountain. Moses ascended the mountain and received the scroll, but Jesus ascends the mountain and he sits on the seat of authority. That seat doesn't belong to Satan, who as a biblical function sometimes represents the authority of the king. Remember, anyone who asserts power from a human standpoint against God is asserting a throne that functions as an antichrist. So how can the antichrist enthrone the Christ on the mountain? It's not his purview. That's where we begin, Rich. And then you have the Sermon on the Mount. And then there's discussion of the city on the mountain. We say city on a hill, but it's the same word in Greek. And then you come to chapter 8 when Jesus descends the mountain with large crowds following him. And then we come to chapter 14, and he went up the mountain by himself to pray. So the mountain is where he goes to teach and to commune with his father. The mountain was also the place where the Antichrist tried to lead him astray with the delusion of human might and strength and human civilization. You know, the temptation of look at the city, look at the great buildings. And now we come to chapter 15, and he's going back up to the mountain to sit on the throne in order to heal. Very interesting pattern, and there's more references. So I think by the time we get to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we can go back and look and see what is the path of this word throughout Matthew. Reading the Bible as literature is very powerful, because if you read it as simply a historical document of where Jesus went when, then these details have no meaning. So if the details have no meaning, why did Matthew write them? If Matthew wrote them, wouldn't we say that if we believe that Scripture is the Word of God, that it would have some significance? What we're claiming is that because we're reading this as literature, this passage, as mundane as it might feel, has significance because of how it fits in the rest of the context of the Gospel of Matthew. And large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. Now, I want to zoom in immediately on the Greek term that is translated here as healed. The word is therapevo. Anyone who knows English hearing this term would immediately recognize the connection with the modern word therapy. And this is where theologians go off the deep end about how scripture and therapy in the modern sense are so compatible, and ultimately aren't we all therapists trying to find inner healing? No. To understand what this word means for Matthew, you have to understand where he's taking it from. In Isaiah 29, we're dealing with the body of Jacob Israel. That's the community 
to which God is bringing healing. That is the text upon which Matthew is drawing. He's now making those verses functional in a context that applies to the Gentiles. But the healing that is presented in Isaiah and represented in Matthew is very specific. Listen to the text. This is verse 18 of chapter 29. On that day, the deaf will hear the words of a book. So before I go further with verse 18, I want to be very clear. Dr. Benton and I have said repeatedly that in every example in the New Testament where we talk about healing, we are talking about the giving of instruction. This is not an opinion. This is not our interpretation. We are saying this because this is a theme from the prophetic tradition, that the healing comes from hearing the words of a book. And Isaiah is literal. So we have to be literal in that sense when we are dealing with the prophetic metaphor of healing. The deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord, and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. This short section from Isaiah 29, verses 18 and 19, reflects exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 15. And again, later, in verse 23, at the end, it talks about the people standing in awe of the God of Israel. So it's not a miracle that's getting people excited who then glorify God because they believe in miracles. The miracle is that deaf people will hear the words of a book and it will open their ears and their eyes. Obviously, we're dealing in metaphor. Obviously, we're talking about instruction. The instruction is the ultimate end that the teacher wants to get to. Any teacher knows that one of his jobs is to make sure that the students have no impediment to learning. And so what the teacher does is to break down the barriers of her students and break down whatever the impediments are for the students to learn. In this Isaiah passage, it's fantastic. It's talking about healing eyes and healing ears so that they can hear the words and see correctly. One of the problems is when we talk about Jesus healing, we think of it as this kind of divine doctor, because we think of a doctor as the paradigm of someone who heals. But remember, in the ancient world, the doctor was first and foremost a wise person. It was wise people that healed, not doctors that provided wisdom, okay? We have to make sure that we understand the correct viewpoint here. So when we think about someone who heals, this is someone who brings wisdom. And you see this still in indigenous communities, the ones who tell the stories, the people's histories, the people who are plugged into wisdom are the same ones who know about the herbs and the plants that heal the people. It's one in the same body of knowledge and the body of competence. With Jesus, he is trying to convey a teaching. And like I said before, this is his primary purpose. And I love the fact, Father, you brought out this point where Isaiah is talking about bringing the people of Israel back so that they can hear these words, but we make an assumption about what Israel means when we read it in Isaiah, and we see that Matthew is trying to shake us up in what we understand Israel to be. Is Israel simply the bloodline of Abraham? By no means. Paul goes directly against this point. 
Jesus is showing that what happened with Israel in the mountain, in the giving of the law, and in the healing a la Isaiah is available to the Gentiles, which we saw last week when we saw the Canaanite woman in Tyre and Sidon who received the crumbs from the master's table, even though she was not technically a child, yet she received from the same bread of the children. So this healing, this teaching, this bread, all of this from Jesus is available to the Gentile, just as it is to what one traditionally thinks of as Israel. And again, the healing is not individualistic. Unfortunately, in a consumer society that is focused on a hyper-individualism, because that's the easiest to exploit. What's in it for me? What do I get if I buy this? What do I get if I consume this? In that setting, it's difficult for you to see the obvious in the text, which is that we're talking not about you, but about Israel. We can discuss the boundaries of Israel, which is exactly what the prophets and now Matthew are interested in. What does it really mean when we say Israel? Of whom is it truly inclusive? But we're talking about a group. And systematically in Scripture, which is completely alien to Hellenism, out of which flows the teaching of individualism, we are always talking about communities. We are always talking about bodies in the sense of a polity that involves people, whether it's a city, literally a polis, or a church body. It's a group. So the healing pertains to the group. And we're talking about a crowd here. It's a crowd in Matthew that followed Jesus up the mountain. And again in Matthew followed him down the mountain. It's a crowd that he was running away from when he wanted time alone on the mountain. And now it's a crowd that is seeking him again on the mountain. And he is sitting teaching a group of people, a body, in this case, literally a crowd. And interestingly, the King James translates this as great multitudes, but in Greek, technically, it's many crowds, which is funny because why would it be a plural of crowds? Isn't it enough to say a big crowd? It's multiple crowds. Why would that be? Well, it doesn't explain, but since we already know that this is about the Gentiles, I would think this is a hint that these are the many nations— each one having its own multitude, and that the multitude of nations, each nation comes as its own crowd, and they're all laying their diseased ones, their incomplete ones, at the feet of Jesus, which also is peculiar. Why would they lay them at Jesus' feet? Jesus is sitting down. Well, are we talking about crowds? Yes. Are we talking about nations? Yes. Are we talking about flocks? There are many ways we can think of groupings of people that fit very much the scriptural paradigm. Different flocks, different nations, all these different groups of people that we divide for selfish reasons all belong to God, are all part of his flock, his field, his city, his whatever. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. On the one hand, this connects to the word that was sent to John the Baptist earlier in Matthew, because presumably John the Baptist was familiar with the scroll of Isaiah. But it's powerful that in Matthew, 
the crowd that is in awe of the Holy One of Israel, the crowd that is praising the Holy One of Israel, is a Gentilic crowd. Yes, the fact that they glorified the God of Israel reflects again Isaiah 29. Now, I have to say I was trained by Matthew to be suspicious once I saw the crowds marvel. Thavmazo is not necessarily a good thing. Oftentimes it means that's the end of thinking about it. (laughs) But a healing in and of itself is not enough. Just like when one sees a wonder-working icon or incorrupt relics or things like this, this is not saying, ooh, ah, look how powerful our God is. What it means is, what a powerful God we have, and therefore I must be obedient. If this is indeed a God who is so powerful and wonderful and glorified as we say, then how much more so should we follow his teaching? How much more so should we be listening to him? How much more so should our hands and our feet be functioning according to his will and not our own? The problem is we often end with the amazement and the glorification, and then we go about our lives, and this is also what Isaiah critiques, how near they are with their lips, but far from me with their hearts, because they don't function according to what they say is so amazing is so awesome, is so glorious. Okay, then do something. So this is where you can always see that Jesus is a little bit nervous because he dispenses in this teaching generously, but as a human being, he must, we imagine, be frustrated with how much his teaching is abused and ignored and tossed to the side because they got the thing that they were looking for. It's hard not to think of Paul's comment about the church in Jerusalem here, it's a different text, but a similar mechanism, where he explains early in Galatians that they heard what he said, but didn't see him. And at the same time, as Isaiah says, glorified the Holy One of Israel because of Paul. But his emphasis that they didn't see him is really critical because that ensures that it's the words of the book not the effigy of Paul, that caused them to marvel or to praise God. Otherwise, what are they praising? Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.